Welcome to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters, Senior Pastor at Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today's sermon is taken from a series of messages by Dr. Betters entitled, The Grapes of Wrath, which describes the ministry of Isaiah in Israel and Judah over the course of 60 years. In today's sermon, The Grapes of Wrath, Part 2, Dr. Betters introduces the second common characteristic of ancient Israel and the church today, which is hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence, sensual indulgence, and a loss of spiritual perspective. Let's join Dr. Betters as he recaps the previous sermon and exhorts us to turn to God and his word. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. We have been talking about the grapes of wrath, Isaiah's grapes of wrath. The last time we were together, we began this series in Isaiah chapter 5, which is the culmination of four chapters in which Isaiah portrays a picture of inevitable judgment upon the people of God. What I have tried to demonstrate in the past is how the characteristics of Judah, which is the southern state of the kingdom of God's people, parallels what I see happening in the church today. And for that reason, I believe that we who live in the 20th century, who live in this very important age, are either ripe for God's judgment or ripe for revival. Because the stage has been set, the characteristics of the church existent in the day of Isaiah in the writing of his fifth chapter are very similar to the characteristics of the church today. And for that reason, I believe the church is going to have to experience some very tough times. We may even have to experience judgment in order to see revival. It is very possible that we might be living in the very last days. I believe with all of my heart that as the signs of the time continue to increase, we are rapidly approaching the coming of Christ. It may or may not happen in my lifetime or your lifetime, but one thing is certain, the coming of Christ in judgment is very near. And just prior to his return, there will be great judgment upon the church. The church will become apostate in the last days. The church will experience a significant hand of God's wrath in the last days. And then he will come again in glory. I think I see that already beginning to take shape. I think I see that already beginning to happen. And for that reason, I believe we are very close to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah talks about the character qualities, or lack thereof, of the church of the last days. In the fifth chapter, the first seven verses, he sings a song. In the first part of the song, he is speaking. In the second part of the song, God is speaking. But in both cases, what Isaiah is saying is that you, the people of God, have been planted as a vineyard. And God takes the choicest vines and places the choicest vines in the choicest soil. He surrounds us with himself, protects us, builds a watchtower, dwells among us, and promises to preserve and keep us with one stipulation and qualification. He expects his people to bear fruit. Fruit-bearing is part and parcel to being the people of God. 
Where there is fruit, he will purge the vine so that it may bring forth more fruit. Where there is no fruit, he will judge. God is looking for fruit. He is looking for evidence among his people that we are the people of God. Failure to produce that fruit will net us the same results that happened to the people living in Judah in the day of Isaiah. As the prophecy of the 60-some chapters of Isaiah unfold, you see him moving from a prosperity period into an exile period. You see the transition from being a people who enjoyed great material blessings and great spiritual blessings to a people who were lamented, who were wept over, who were in virtual exile. And then you see Isaiah in the last six chapters or seven chapters of his book looking down in through heaven's telescope to what I call the eschaton or the last days. Speaking of a new heaven and a new earth where God is going to bring his people together to be with him from all ages, past, present, and future. And so you see in this sweeping book a movement of God's spirit. But you see in the midst of these first seven chapters, a time of darkness, a time of despair, a time of emptiness. The first of the grapes of wrath that Isaiah speaks of, we talked about the last time we were together, a practical atheism, professing a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. People who lose their sense of identity, their sense of purpose, who rather than reaching out to the oppressed and the poor, and the weak and the infirm, and calling men to repentance to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we instead annex their properties and build big estates, and we become power-hungry and manipulative, rather than having spiritual eyes that see the decay and the, and the darkness around us, and reach out in faith to touch those who are hurting and lost in a fallen and a dark world. But now we come to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. I'd like us to look at the second characteristic of the church in Isaiah's day, which I believe is characteristic of our churches today. Verse 11 and verse 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. The second sin characteristic of the church in the last days will be hedonism. Not only practical atheism, but a hedonism, a pursuit of pleasure, a pursuit of self-interest, self-indulgence, sensual indulgence, and what goes with sensual indulgence, that is a lack or a loss of spiritual perception. You see, the two go hand in hand. The more sensually indulgent we become, the more spiritual perception is lost. We lose our senses because of our quest or our lust after hedonistic desire. You see, in this particular case, drink was their life. It's what got them out of bed in the morning. It's what kept them out of bed at night. But notice, it's not the drink so much that is being condemned. And I would say that many pastors who would read those verses would take the time to exhort their congregations about the, the, the wiles of drinking. And I don't believe that's the essence of the passage. It was not the drink that was wrong. 
It was that little phrase that you see, they lost a regard for the deeds of God. They have no regard. They have no knowledge of God. Oh, now they have a knowledge of God. They believe that God is doing something, but they refuse to grasp the significance of what they see. And the reason they can't see is because they are blinded by the, by the pursuit of their own pleasures. The deeds of the Lord are ignored. They glance over the work of redemption. They say, oh yes, that's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't change my life. They glance over the work of creation. They say, my, isn't that beautiful? But it doesn't change my life. They ignore the gospel of law and the gospel of grace. They say, yes, I know there are ten commandments, but it doesn't change my life. I know that Jesus Christ has died to secure salvation on the cross, but it doesn't change my life. I believe God is sovereign over the affairs of nations and men. And I believe that his hand is leading and guiding and directing everything that is happening in this world, specifically what's happening in my life, but it doesn't change my life. Why? Because I'm pursuing other things. I'm pursuing other things. You see, as the people of God in the Old Testament, they had become blinded to the curses of the covenant. You see, there are many blessings to the covenant. There are many blessings to being the people of God, but there are also cursings to being the, the people of God. When you get home, read Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning with verse 19. It speaks of the cursings and the wrath of a zealous God who will burn against the deeds of men who ignore the deeds of God. He says all the curses in this book will fall upon him. The Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster according to the curses of the covenant written in this book in the law. Now they forgot all of that. They said, well, we're the people of God. We're the people of the covenant. We're the people who are living under grace. Certainly God cannot bring judgment against us. Certainly God will turn his back against judging us. Certainly he will wink at our sins. And so we pursue our pleasures and we pursue our power and we pursue our sensual appetites. The contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, would say in his third chapter as you read it, Hear the word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought, out of, brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. God says you are an elect people. You are a people of privilege. You are a people of the covenant. And there is a higher calling and a higher responsibility that goes with being the people of the covenant. To whom much is given, he has expected more. Notice Isaiah 5, verse 13. Therefore, my people will go into exile. This is the judgment. You're going into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. A vivid description in Lamentations is given to us of what people years later experienced while they were in exile. Jeremiah the prophet would tell us they had no food. They had to eat the bodies of their own children. There was no honor. They were treated like cows. There was no power. There was no worship. There was no hope. These people lived in virtual darkness. It caused Jeremiah great grief. 
And he lamented again and again the state of the church of his time. Why? Because they were consumed with sensuality. They were consumed with their own pleasures. What a vivid description in verse 14. Look what he says. Therefore, Sheol, or the grave, some versions have hell. Therefore, hell enlarges its appetite. What a picture. And opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. Friends, he's talking about the church here. We're so quick to point out the sins of those who are outside of the church and to speak of their lost condition. But there are many who sit here today and others who listen who claim to be Christians who are destined for hell. Who are destined for destruction. Why? Because of the pursuit of your own pleasures. What a picture. He says the party's over. The affluence has ended. There will be no more estates with you sitting like a squire in the middle. There will be no more drink. Why? Because Sheol has opened its mouth. The place of the dead has opened its mouth and has enlarged its lust for the souls of men. And it will consume them again and again and again. And it will never be satisfied. The appetite for pleasure and power and self-serving interests is met head-on by destruction and eventually the fall of their city, Jerusalem. And it would happen in Isaiah's day. God meted out judgment against his church. So he says in verse 15, So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. Underscore those words, the eyes. The eyes are the organs of lust and desire. The very things that gave them pleasure no longer will satisfy. The very longing after pleasure is supplanted by a shroud of death. And God has delivered them over to their pleasures. Their pleasures become their gods, but their gods cannot and do not satisfy. They lust, but they have not. Then he says in verse 16, but the Lord Almighty, and that's, by the way, a theme of Isaiah, will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. You cannot miss the holiness of God when you read the book of Isaiah. Then what does he say in verse 17? He says, the sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. You see, their flocks which was the source of wealth in those days. The flocks, which were their witness to the other nations of the prosperity that God had given to, to his people. Their flocks, which were the vehicle by which they worshipped in sacrificing their flocks. And so their wealth and their witness and their worship is now doomed to roam the ruins of a one-time prosperous nation now existing under the wrath of God. What a gloomy picture. What a gloomy picture. I believe there is a very, very, very subtle danger that in the years to come will become extremely oppressive if the church is not careful in what is called the church growth movement. Now let me tell you about the church growth movement. One of the things that people who are the leaders in the church growth movement are concerned about is the dwindling supply of worshipers in the American church. 
They look around at our churches and they say, why are they empty? Why are they empty? Why are there so few people interested? Are we going the same path as England went? Where virtually 99% of England's populace does not go to church at all? Are we going the same path as France, which is living in virtual hedonism? Are we going the same path as Germany, where the church and its relationship to its people is virtually non-existent? Is the Western church, the European church of which we are a part, is it, is it destined to doom? Is it destined to failure? They look at what is happening at a church system in America that one time was great, where the fires of revival lit the prairie lands, where some of you are old enough to remember times when the churches were jam-packed, when revival meetings were held, and thousands and thousands of people were flocking to hear the gospel. It wasn't too many generations ago that we experienced the great preachers of our day and the great revivals under Edwards and, and Finney and the others. We only read about those things now. They're in the distant past, and we don't know what's, what that's like to live under that kind of church life. But fundamental to their question are some answers that I don't believe are biblical. In fact, there's a philosophical, what I call an oxymoron in the church growth movement. It goes like this. The first thing they do is they describe the world scene. They say, let's look at the church outside of America. Let's look at the church around the world, not just in the European or Western culture. Let's look at the church universally. And what do we see? Well, we start with America usually. We say, well, there are 375,000 churches in the United States. Did you know that? The median or average attendance in those churches, 375,000 of them, is 75 people. That means that over half of all the people in this country who worship anywhere worship in one-seventh of all of the churches. One-seventh of all of the churches represent over half of the worshiping body. Churches that have 250 people in attendance or more represent the 95 percentile. Churches like ours that average 1,000 people or more are in the 99.9 .9 percentile. That means that only 0.1 of 1% of the churches in America have more people coming out than this church does. The church growth experts look at that and they say, how come 85% of the churches in America are on the decline? Why in America do 50 to 60 churches close every week? Every single week, 50 to 60 churches in this country shut their doors and close up shop. Now immediately, the church growth experts then jump to the world scene. They go over to South Korea. They say, look in contrast what's happening in South Korea. Look at how thousands and thousands of people are flocking to churches all over South Korea. They go to Latin America, and they say that in contrast to the 50 to 60 churches in America that close every week, in every year in South America, 50,000 new churches will be started every year. Why in Latin America are they opening churches at the rate of 50,000 per year, and in America we're closing them at the rate of 50 per week? 
They point to the former Soviet Union and speak of the great hunger that exists in those churches. How many, many new congregations are already beginning to sprout up. But now here is where the oxymoron jumps in. You see, these same church growth experts look at what's happening around the world. And they look at what's happening in America. And they say, well, now we need to make a jump. And they make this philosophical jump from we need to do the same things that they're doing in the non-Western churches, in our Western churches, and we will have the same results. And they make a jump that I believe is too big of a jump to make. Now, here's the jump that they make. They say, you know what we need to do? We need to speak with relevance to our culture. We need to speak with clarity to our culture. Now that sounds good, but now here is where the trouble begins. We need to change the language. We need to accommodate the changing society around us. We need to begin to structure our preaching and our teaching and our worship so that the average non-Christian will not be offended we need to engage our culture because our churches are falling apart and our churches in America are falling apart while others around the world are not. And so therefore we must accommodate our culture in order to engage our culture. Where it fails is in determining that the reason for such rapid growth worldwide of the church and the contrasting fall of the European and the American church is that in the world church, they have refused to bow to the pressures of meeting people's, quote, felt needs, which is a buzzword of church growth, over against their real need. Here is where the average unchurched man is looking for in a church. Here is what he is seeking for in a church. He wants his felt need to be addressed. But don't talk about his real need. I engaged a man recently in a public setting of other pastors. I don't mind telling you he's a well-respected theologian and a well-respected church growth expert, but I want to tell you he's dead wrong. One of the questions I raised in that setting with all the other pastors sitting there was this. I said, how is it that we make the jump from analyzing the world church where there is such great growth and the American church where there is such great decline and we fail to ask ourselves why those churches are growing. It is not because they're meeting quote felt needs. It is because they are being persecuted. It is because they are suffering. It is because they are refusing to bow to the pressures of compromising the gospel. It is because they're willing to pay the price and not accommodate the culture in which they live but to contrast the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, many people who study the scriptures believe that God's judgment is on America, or at least that it's coming. Sometimes we want to blame the politicians for the mess that America is in, but God calls on his people to repent and for us to turn from our wicked ways, and then we will experience his blessing. I'm Sharon, Chuck's wife. And I'm really glad that you've tuned in for this series on the Grapes of Wrath. Each one of us needs to plead with our God to open our eyes to where we have compromised or embrace the culture in ways that diminish God's authority in our lives. 
If you don't have a church home, you can join us online every Sunday for our live service where you'll hear more of these strong messages that declare God's gracious love and his call to holiness. Ron, please share with our audience how they can join us online on Sunday mornings, as well as how they can visit our website to download any messages that they may have missed. Thank you for joining us today for the message from the Grapes of Wrath series. If you would like to receive a copy of this entire sermon, you can contact Mark 8 Ministries and request the Grapes of Wrath Part 2 or simply reference sermon number 94-35. Mark Inc. Ministries can be reached toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Check out our website at www.markinc.org. If you would like to help In His Grip and our radio ministry stay on the air, or help us to continue providing free resources to hurting people, Your prayers and gifts are always welcome. You can call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Or visit our website at markinc.org and click on the support button for more information. We would like to thank you for your continued listening and support. Mark Inc. Ministries is a nonprofit ministry that appreciates your ongoing prayers and support. For more information, or if you would like to email us, visit our website at markinc.org. We would also like to invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at Glasgow Church. The church is located at 2880 Summit Bridge Road in Bear, Delaware, and our service begins at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday morning. If you are unable to attend the service in person, you can join our live stream from anywhere by going to our website at www.glasgowchurch.com. If you would like to contact us at the church, we can be reached at area code 302-834-4772 or through our website at glasgowchurch.com. Thank you again for listening to today's broadcast. Be sure to join us tomorrow as Dr. Betters continues this challenging series, The Grapes of Wrath. Have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust him as long as you are in his grip.